Well, I'll ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn in them to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And as we begin, why don't we once again bow for a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would attend to our time now as we study the Word of God together. We ask that our minds would be open, that our hearts would be receptive, that we would indeed find great joy and comfort in the things that we hear this day, that it might not simply inform our minds, but that it would inform our hearts. And that what we hear about you and about your greatness would inform us by way of the gospel that we might share it more effectively with others. So, Lord, we pray for that this morning, and we thank you for promising to attend to us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always a great privilege for us to be together, to have been chosen by God as his children. I was thinking about that this week. To be chosen by God as one of his own so that we might know him. And since he has given us his spirit so that we might not just hear the words that we say, but that we might understand it. And by understanding it, thereby put it into practice in our lives. All for the glory of God as we study the Word of God as a Christian. Obedience, practice. That is our ultimate desire as we open the Word of God together. That should be your desire today. That should be our desire collectively and individually as Christians. Each and every time we open the Word of God, our desire should be, as we study, not just to hear words, not just to, to say, okay, yeah, I did my study, therefore that's good enough, but really to practice, to obey what He has said, to put it into practice in our very lives. Now, for some who are in this place... They will not understand what is said here this morning. Why? Because they have not yet believed upon Jesus Christ as their Savior. They will hear words. They may understand the language of those words, but they will not understand the intent. Because in order to understand what God does say in its in a way in which you can obey it to the glory and honor of God, you must know His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the place where all of us were at one point. We were at the point by which we did not understand the things of God. And it wasn't until God made us alive in Jesus Christ that He granted to us saving faith in His Son. God granted to us. We did not find God. God came to us. God saved us. God granted to us faith in His Son. So that when we began to study His Word, we could understand 
and obey. In our study of the book of Romans, we have learned throughout the entire study, but more acutely since chapter 9, that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Certainly that was a concept probably in our minds overall at large as Christians, especially here in this church, but we have seen it acutely in our study ever since Paul began to address his Jewish brothers and sisters about this reality, that God is sovereign in salvation. That is simply to say that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to help our way into heaven. No one can do anything to help themselves by way of salvation. All we have done when it comes to the need for salvation and the accomplishment of it for us, all we have done is bring the sin guilt and the penalty from which we must be saved from. That's, that's our part. And the Apostle Paul has been dealing with this reality all along in our study. But in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, he focuses his attention and his argument on his ethnic brothers and sisters, the Jewish people. And he's speaking specifically to them, and he has already portrayed them collectively and nationally as a disobedient people who are completely resistant to the righteousness of God that is being declared in the gospel. They're resistant to the gospel. They're not the only people resistant in the world even today, but Paul is addressing them because Paul is one of them. And Paul wants, has a heart for them. Paul wants to see them saved. And so Paul wants them to understand their resistance to the gospel. And as we learned last Lord's Day, God is pouring out His grace upon them over and over and over and over again, even though they have rejected His kindness over and over and over again. So that even now, they are without excuse. They cannot say that they have never heard the message that Paul is proclaiming concerning the grace of God to save. They cannot say we have never heard that. That is a lie because they had heard of God's grace. In fact, all men know of God's grace. All men know that God is gracious and wants to be gracious and desires His graciousness to be overflowed and poured out. And yet all men have rejected that. Because Psalm 19 told us that even creation preaches about the grace of God. Creation itself pours forth speech. Verse 18 of chapter 10. The voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That's Psalm 19 verse 4. Creation continually proclaiming throughout the whole earth. The whole globe itself. And the gospel is ultimately just that, an expression of God's grace. So for God to give us the gospel, that is the most gracious act that God could have done. God could have left us to ourselves and said, hey, listen, figure it out. And yet God came to us and told us clearly what we needed. 
To know that we can be saved, that we must be saved, and that He is the one who accomplished that for us, that is the epitome of grace. And so all men know God's grace, and yet they still reject. Heard the sad story even this morning of one of our own people who shared the gospel with his own brother, and his brother said, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. The rejecting of the grace of God. The gospel is grace. But some are made to believe. Some are made to believe. And so also, though the act of God, through the act of God's saving, no one can say that they haven't heard of the God's grace, but because God does save, and He saves some who you would think they're unsavable in your own mind, no one can say also that they didn't know the extent of God's love by means of His grace. No one can say, I, I didn't know God was loving. No one can rightly claim an ignorance, not even Paul's Jewish heritage. They couldn't claim ignorance that God was saving people from all the world and not just the Jews. They couldn't say that in any kind of intellectual honesty. Nor can anyone else say that. No one else could ever say that they didn't know of God's love. Just look around and see. Just look to your left and to your right, even in this very room. Even Gentiles, non-Jews... You and I, who have no spiritual privilege at all by way of our own heritage, if you're not a Jew, we have nothing at all in our spiritual heritage going back to the creation of man by which we have any kind of favor in the eyes of God. And yet here we are embracing the gospel news. And throughout it all, the sovereignty of God in salvation is being highlighted over and over and over again. God is sovereign. And yet people continue to stumble even over that. They stumble over the reality that God is sovereign in salvation. And part of the reason that the sovereignty of God is being emphasized over and over again by the Apostle Paul is because we need to know how certain our salvation is. We need to know that. We need to rest on that. That has to be solid ground for us. That can't be wavering ground. That can't be shaky ground like it is in other religions who have no hope. No wonder it's shaky ground. It's, it's unknown if it's certain ground. We have a certain ground that we stand on and we need to know that. And that is bound up in the reality of the sovereignty of God. You might remember I told us several months ago that this is one of the themes that runs through this entire this entire epistle, the the issue of the certainty of your salvation. In fact, the apostle Paul becomes so bold that in chapter eight, just turn back there for a moment. In chapter eight, he says it this way: "What shall we say to these things?" If God is for us, then who can be against us? And Paul works through that argument in chapter 8, and then he ends with one of the best statements on assurance in all of the Scriptures. It starts in verse 38, For I'm convinced 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no better a statement in all the Scripture about your assurance and your security that we have in Jesus Christ when we know Him by faith than that statement right there. The sovereign purposes of God are so certain that nothing, nothing, not even your own stubbornness, nothing can end the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now remember, Paul is speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And so the Jewish mind would say, Oh, okay, but, but wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute here. We are Jews. Wait a minute. Okay, if that's true, if the sovereignty of God is true in it all, and what He does is absolutely secure and certain, okay, if that's true, then what about us? What about us, Paul? God's own people. You see, the gospel you're sharing, it it sounds grandiose, but if God is sovereign to save like you're saying, it doesn't seem like He's saving us. It doesn't seem like the Jews following that plan. Isn't the true reality... That some people are not saved? Isn't that the true reality? Some people are not saved. Especially the Jews. Isn't that proof then, Paul, that things aren't as certain as you seem to be saying? Well, the purpose of chapters 9 through 11 was for Paul to answer that specific question. In fact, specifically in chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul says what? Not all Israel is Israel. To his own Jewish blood. Not all Israel is Israel. You see, the real answer to the question of, hey, isn't that the case, not are all saved? The real answer to that is, yeah, that's true, because not all Israel is Israel. In other words, there is the literal national Israel, or the literal nation of Jewish people in the eyes of God. I'm not talking about the 1948 that made Israel, quote-unquote, nation in the world as world-recognized. They were a nation before that ever happened. So there's national Israel, but there's another Israel within them. There's an elect Israel. We might even call it spiritual Israel. And what Paul has been trying to explain to his brothers and sisters is that it was never God's purpose or promise that the whole of physical Israel would be saved. That was never the promise of God. That's never what God intended. That was never what God meant by His words. God never meant that by His own words of promise to Israel, He never meant His purpose was only to save those 
who were Israel. Or that he was going to save all of those who were Israel. No, his purpose was only to save those whom he chose. Spiritual Israel or elect Israel. And that purpose he has been faithfully carrying out from the very beginning. We remember that Paul illustrated this for us in our study by showing that God made a distinction between two brothers. Remember? God made a distinction early on between Isaac and Ishmael. Right? Abraham, through Ishmael, the promise will not come. That's not the way I I planned this thing. You're trying to do it on your own. Ishmael is a son of Abraham, but that's not the son of the promise. The son of the promise is Isaac. That's the choice of God. And then he parred that down even further when he came to Jacob and Esau. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, yet they were not even born yet. In other words, God is sovereign over his purposes and he always brings them to pass. Remember the statement that Paul makes in chapter 9 verse 11? For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand. There you go. Purpose, sovereign. Sovereign purpose, sovereign choice. In order that that might be the very foundation. That it might stand. Stand unchangeable. Stand absolutely certain. Stand exactly where God said it was going to be. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. You might even put the word decree there because of him who decreed it to happen and then made it happen. You see, the fact is being emphasized over and over and over again by the Apostle Paul that for anybody to be saved, it is the result of the election of God. God's sovereign purpose to save you. That is how you and I are saved. That is how all Christians are saved. But Paul also clearly emphasizes throughout this entire epistle that we as people are responsible for our condemnation if we do not believe. God is sovereign to save, and yet we are personally responsible for our guilt. We cannot save ourselves but we are personally responsible for our condemnation. God's way of salvation has always been by grace through faith. And that's what we saw being argued for even more so in chapter 10. People are not saved because they are morally good. You Jews, Paul's saying to his brothers and sisters, you're not saved because you're Keeping some set of laws, that's, that does nothing for you. You have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. Just because you're religious people, just because you go to a, a place where you say you worship God, that doesn't do any good for you. People are not saved because they're some upright citizen, morally higher ground than somebody else on, this, on a level lower than them. They're not saved because they go to church and those who do not go to church are not saved. No, they are not saved because they're ethnic Jews as Paul's ethnic brothers and sisters would have thought. We are the children of who? 
Abraham, they said. No, it's by means of God's calling that saves. Therefore, Paul said, we have to preach. We have to preach the gospel. We have to tell them the good news. And the one thing that matters is whether a person believes it and obeys it. So salvation is all of God. Condemnation is all of us. There's no need for any of us to have any trouble with that. Because just as Paul has said to his own countrymen, we can do the same thing. Just quote the Old Testament. Here's what the Old Testament says. And it says that throughout the Bible. God's sovereign to save. That's implied everywhere in Scripture. And you are responsible to believe. And so the end of chapter 10, we see the words of the Apostle Paul to his ethnic brothers and sisters in verse 21. All day long, God is saying through Isaiah, all day long I stretched out my hands to you, a disobedient, obstinate people. God was fulfilling his purposes just as he promised. God is free to save He's free to save according to his own sovereign will, and man is responsible for his own condemnation by means of him rejecting God's way. So when you come to chapter 11, the future of the Jews is now being considered. What's going to happen with the Jews now? What's going to happen with us now? Paul's countrymen would have been asking this in their minds. What about us in the future? Okay, if we stipulate all of that, Paul, what about us from here on out? Where, what's the plan for us now? I mean, if God has rejected us, what now? If God has set us aside, as you have said, and turned to others in order to save them, So that they could be saved. If God is doing that, Paul, if he's turning to the non-Jewish people, does that mean that he is totally finished with us? Well, here in chapter 11, Paul tells us that no, no. God is not finished with the Jew. He's not finished with the Jew. In fact, his purposes include both Jew and Gentile. In fact, they always have. That's why Paul told the church in Ephesus, the dividing wall has been torn down. The wall between Jew and Gentile, the the hostility, the separation, the thing in the mind of, of the Jewish nation that said, we're the only people. It's been torn down. It's always been that way. Now, it's true. It is true that they deserve to be cut off. Just like you and I, you and I prior to knowing Jesus Christ, God, we deserve anything God hands out. We deserve the condemnation that that God could give us despite any chances that he might give. The Jewish nation, Paul is saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters, listen, you deserve it despite giving chances over and over again. You still have and are still rejecting. You deserve to be cut off. But the purpose, and I want to show you now, Paul says, is to show you that a total casting away is not going to happen. Deserve it, but a total casting away will not happen. In God's grace, 
there is a remnant that He has chosen. In God's grace, there is a remnant that He has chosen. You can't deny the grace of God because creation proclaims it everywhere. You can't deny the grace of God because the gospel is a grace of God. And you can't deny the grace of God because God has chosen a remnant when nobody deserves it. Nobody. So that's the background. In a general sense, we can divide this chapter up into two sections. Verses 1 to 10 would be the first section, which shows that the casting off of the Jews is not total. Casting off of the Jews is not total. And then in verses 11 through the end, some people divide it up with three, taking verse 33 to 36 as a whole section by itself. But I'm just going to include that in the, in the last section, 11 to 36. <clears throat> this final section, which shows that the casting off the Jews is not final. It is not total, verses 1 to 10, and it is not final, verses 11 to 36. So all of that is just introductory background understanding as to where Paul is going and where his argumentation has taken us from the start and to where we are now. But it's necessary that we do that sometimes in our study. It's necessary. You see me do that often as we study because, listen, we were here last week. We studied it last week in chapter 10, but a whole week's gone by, and most of us sometimes can't even remember what we had for dinner last night, let alone what we studied a week ago. And some of you are in other studies and other kinds of things, and all of that is layered upon itself in your mind. And so we have to get back to where we were. And so all of that background is necessary just to get us up to speed so that we might head off any potential confusion that we might encounter in this chapter. And there are places where confusion has been encountered throughout the centuries. So let's just get into these first ten verses. The first ten verses proving that God's rejection of Israel is not total. God's rejection of Israel is not total. Remember, the sovereignty of God is the undercurrent in all of this. The sovereignty of God. That's the river that this is all riding upon. <clears throat> Here's how Paul begins his argument in verse 1. Look at what he says. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, all that's true. You're asking the question, well, what about us? What's our future? I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Paul anticipating, once again, we've seen it over and over again in his argumentation from chapter 9 through the point here we are now, and he's done it in previous chapters as well. He's asking these questions uh, like a good teacher does, anticipating the questions that are rising in the minds of those whom he's writing to. And here, his Jewish brother and sisters, they're saying, well, God hasn't rejected his people totally, has he? In other words, is it possible that God has totally thrown away His people? Is that even possible? Is that a possible thing to say? When we say people, we mean the Jews. Has God thrown away the Jews totally? We might even ask here, in the context of the Apostle Paul, does reject mean totally or completely? The answer that is given here. By Paul in verse 1 is, may it never be. 
May it never be. The strongest adversative in the Greek language. May May it never be. In other words, you can't put a stronger roadblock in a sentence than that. You know, but is a word we use. He did this, but he did that. That that but is an adversative in grammar. It's a contrasting word. Here Paul's saying, absolutely not. Just stop right there. Don't even entertain the thought. It cannot be. It's unthinkable. There's no possible way. That's that's the idea. That's the emphasis that Paul's putting on it. Even the translators try to use all kinds of grammatical indicators for us to understand the clarity of that. They put an exclamation point after it. May it never be, because that's how we put emotion in our language. The Greek language wasn't like that. There's no exclamation point. It's all about how the word is phrased and where it is in the sentence and the makeup of its uh, of the word itself. It's very strong adversative here. No, there is no possible way. Okay, Paul, prove it. Prove it. Prove to us that he hasn't totally, completely thrown us away. Prove it. How does Paul do that? How does Paul prove to them that's not the case? Well, there are three ways in which Paul takes up to prove that reality. One is personal, two are theological. One is personal testimony, the other two are theological realities that cannot be denied. So let's just take these one at a time and see how this unfolds. The first is personal, his own person, his own person. The first step that Paul takes to prove the reality that God hasn't gotten rid of Israel totally, completely, is his own person. Paul uses his own person as proof that there's no possible way that God has totally forsaken the Jews. This is his point right here. In the second half of verse 1, in the first half of verse 2, Paul says, For I too am a, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now let's think through this together with the Apostle Paul. Pretend for a moment that you're a Jew. Maybe you are. I don't know any in our church, but maybe you are. Pretend for a moment, if you're not, that you are, and you've grown up your whole life under the idea and under the teaching by the religious leaders of your day, from ancient time all the way up to today, that you and your nation are the only chosen people of God. You're it. You're God's people. You believe that you have a relationship with God by His choosing. Sounds familiar. And that nothing can change that after all because God has promised it to your forefathers down through the history. And then here's this guy who comes in who used to be like you. In fact, maybe he's your brother. He comes in and now he tells you that the only way to actually know God And by no God, he means to be saved is by faith in this man named Jesus Christ. 
And he said some things that are disturbing to you because he's shown you from, from the Old Testament scriptures, from your own Bible, from your own prophets, he's shown you that the prophets proclaim some of those truths. And that's disturbing to you. It seems that somehow you missed it. Somehow that was not what you were thinking. And now he's saying not all Israel is Israel. So if that's true, then God must have rejected Israel altogether. Because you sure don't see any embracing Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying here to his Jewish brothers and sisters, listen to me, you have to listen to me. You have to listen to me. God forbid that anybody should conclude that I'm teaching that God is totally finished with the nation of Israel. God forbid that. That certainly can't be true because one, notice, verse one, notice, I am also an Israelite. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm even of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now there are two particular things that are important about this entire statement. One is that Paul is saying, I'm an Israelite. And the other is, I'm of Abraham. He differentiates that even down more when he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'll talk about that in just a second. One commentator put it this way. Paul is saying, listen, quote, if nobody thinks that I'm teaching that when God sent his son into this world with the gospel as the way of salvation, that it meant that no Jew was ever to be saved, that God is totally or was totally finished with Israel and that he is only going to save Gentiles, then all you have to do is look at me. I'm a personal testimony to the foolishness of that reality. I'm living testimony that God is not finished with Israel because I'm an Israelite. How can you say, and how could it be true, that God is done with Israel when all you got to do is look at me? I'm an Israelite. If that's not enough, I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm not some proselyte. I'm not some Jew by name only. No. Listen, being of the seed of Abraham was the great bragging point of all true Jews. Even when Jesus was preaching, they said, our father is Abraham. Jesus said, you're not of your father, you're of the devil. Our father is Abraham, the Pharisees said. That was the bragging point. That was the thing they held to. We are of the seed of Abraham. And so Paul's saying, listen, I'm not just an Israelite, although I am a true one. I'm not just that, but I have come from the right line of people. I'm of Abraham. I'm of the line that was perpetuated down throughout Jacob, who God called Israel. Then he gets even more specific. says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. 
<laughs> because someone could have made the argument that, hey, well, yeah, but you weren't of the tribe of Benjamin, which would say that you were of one of those tribes that went north when the nation split after Solomon died and his sons took the kingdom. Benjamin was the only tribe to stand with Judah under that horrific time in the history of Israel. Benjamin was the only one with Judah that worshipped in Jerusalem, the true place where God had come. Not in the north where the ten tribes went, in Samaria where they had their worship. That's why when Jesus went to Samaria in John chapter 4, the woman said, well, we say our worship's here, you say it's in Jerusalem, but, you know, in the end. Why? Because under the split of the nations, that's what happened. Paul says, no, no, listen. How can anyone say that God is finished with Israel when I'm going, when I'm living proof? I'm living proof that he's not finished with Israel. If God is totally finished with Israel, then why am I saved? Now, I'm an Israelite. And if God is done with Israel, then not a single Israelite could ever believe the gospel and be saved. And yet here I am. I'm living proof that right here, I believe in Jesus Christ. God can't be done with Israel. May it never be. And then he adds the words of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Once again, Paul invokes the sovereign foreknowledge of God when it comes to salvation. This is a declaration of the distinction between National Israel and spiritual Israel. He's not talking about foreknowing all of national Israel. He's talking about knowing those whom he has chosen to save. So when I say national Israel, I mean the heritage of Paul, the Jewish heritage of Paul. And when I say spiritual Israel, what we mean is the elect Jews, the chosen. Just like we would say the elect of any Gentiles. Those whom God foreknew are the elect Jews who are part who are part of the national heritage of Jews so they're part of the whole but that's just it they're part Now that's an important distinction to make because there has been so much confusion over the centuries concerning this very issue as to whom God is saving because we're going to read a little farther in chapter 11, Paul says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Sounds very contradictory if you don't make the distinction, if you don't keep it where God is speaking through the Apostle Paul to his brothers and sisters, understanding exactly what's being said there. There's a lot of confusion that goes on in evangelicalism between those who are Israel people, quote-unquote, is national Israel going to continue or is national Israel not going to continue? Is the church the new Israel? That's a whole theological discussion that I'm not going to get into in this time, but that's part of the problems that people come to with this chapter. Some commentators try to say that Paul is speaking here of national Israel as a whole. Others say, no, he's just talking about the elect. But I need to say that I believe he's referring to both. He's referring to both. 
Why? Because the preservation of national Israel has to take place in order to preserve the specific people of national Israel that he foreknows. The whole has to continue in order to save the remnant. That's the idea. In other words, if God were to totally forsake national Israel, then he would, by affiliation, have to totally forsake those whom he foreknew within national Israel. As we know, foreknowledge means foreordained. That's what it means. Those whom God has foreordained to save. God has not rejected His people whom He foreordained. So God will not forego saving those whom He has chosen to save. That's a key you have to keep in your mind. God will not forego saving those whom he has foreordained to save. And therefore, because of the promise to the fathers, the ancient fathers in Israel, because of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has not totally forsaken Israel. I I think we can get another example of this from another apostle, Peter, in 2 Peter. Turn over to Second Peter for a moment. Not in reference to Israel, but in reference to the principle that I'm talking about. The preservation of the whole in order to save the remnant. The preservation of the whole in order to save the remnant. Right? In Second Peter, Peter is dealing with the ungodliness that is happening within the world, within evangelicalism, within his time period in which false prophets and false teachers and false evangelists and false gospels and all of this stuff is going on in the world. And Peter wants to inform the people of these things. He's reminding them of the truth of the gospel. He's reminding them of what they have in Christ. He's reminding them of how God has chosen them, how God carries them along, that they can trust the Scriptures. The Scriptures have been given by God's very promise in 21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You can trust the Word of God. You can trust what it says. This is God's words. And false prophets are going to come, try to undermine all of these things. And he gives the character of them in a, in a very graphic way in chapter 2. So Peter's trying to encourage the saved, those whom God has saved, because they're concerned. We got other people that we need to pray about, other people we're concerned about. What happens if this whole thing ends tomorrow? I mean, what about them? Are, are they, has God just forsaken them? What if they were part of God's purpose, but God forsaken them? It's the same kind of idea that the Jews are thinking with the Apostle Paul about Israel. What if, well, then God must have forgotten his promise. And so Peter in chapter 3 says, now this, here's the reason I'm writing this. It's the second letter that I'm writing to you. Why? Because I'm trying to stir your mind up by way of reminder. That you remember the words spoken beforehand by the prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior and by your apostles. I want you to remember what you were taught. I want you to remember the truth because the truth is going to help you. The truth is going to carry you along. So I want you to know these things. I want to remind you of these things. So know this first of all. That 
in the last days, mockers will come with mocking. They'll follow after their own lusts. They'll say, where is the promise of the coming? Hey, we hear that today. When is, oh yeah, you talk about a return of, when is this going to happen? I mean, it was happening in Peter's day. Mockers were coming. Oh yeah, you say Jesus is coming back. Well, we haven't seen it. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I wake up, the sun rises, I go to bed, the moon, the sun goes down, day after day, everything stays the same. Paul, Peter says, for when we, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But the present heavens and the present earth by his word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men now remember that that's an important distinction right there the world is being preserved by God so that one day God will destroy it with ungodly men but don't let this escape your notice Beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. There's been all kinds of stuff written about that birth. About the length of time a day is with God. And they take and extrapolate that all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and, and try to talk about the creation of the earth and see when God created it was a thousand years. These massive time frames and evolution gets in there and you get these Christian evolutionists, which is a contradiction in and of itself. They try to extrapolate based upon this. You know what Peter's saying? God's not bound by time. He's saying the same thing that we've heard in the past. God is not like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Don't think that God acts like you. That's what Peter's saying there. It, it shouldn't be hard. For God, time isn't an issue. doesn't matter if it said, for one day is like a million years with God, and a million years is like one day. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter if it said one second. The fact is, God's outside of time. Time doesn't matter. The Lord isn't slow about His promise. In other words, God's promise is secure. It's set. It will happen. Time's not the issue with Him. It will happen. He's not slow, as some count slowness. Now, here's the point I want to get to. But is patient toward you, Peter's talking about. He's patient toward you, all people. But particularly, he's patient with with even us as Christians. He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. Now, we have extrapolated that in all kinds of ways in evangelicalism, saying, see, God doesn't want, to, doesn't want anybody to perish. Well, there's a truth to that in the mystery of God, that God has created his people, and his desire wasn't that anybody perish. Adam and Eve sinned. We were all in Adam and Eve when Adam sinned. We were there, and, and we're guilty of that. And, and yet, there's going to be perishing. God is angry with the wicked every day. And so Paul, Peter is saying, look, it, God's, God's preserving the world to destroy it. But get this, it's not going to be destroyed until God saves all whom he's chosen to save. That's the idea. That's the idea. It's going to come. It's going to come quick. It's going to come like a thief, it says in verse 10. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works are going to be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This is how we know he's talking to Christians. 
He's not going to tell pagans you need to be in holy conduct and godliness. They can't be. But you need to be looking for the hastening of the coming day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements with fire and intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heaven and new earth, which God dwells. Peter's saying the same thing in chapter 3, verse 9, as Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11 to his Jewish brothers and sisters. God hasn't rejected the whole because God has a remnant to save. And the remnant is part of the whole. Paul's saying the same thing. God hasn't cast off the nation of Israel totally. Why? Because he has foreordained to save some. God isn't going to destroy the world until the very last Christian person he's chosen to save is saved. So you don't have to fret about it. You ever wonder, oh my gosh, is, is nuclear war going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. Russia's doing this. America's doing this. Okay, Korea's doing this. I mean, all these crazy people ruling the countries of the world. What's going on, man? We got we to gotta build our bunker. No, you don't. No, you don't. Give your money to the church. Don't build the bunker. Because this will be the safest place. The bunker's not going to help you. God is not going to destroy anything until he saves those whom he's chosen to save. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God hasn't cast off Israel totally because he's foreordained to save some. And so Paul gives an example from the Old Testament. This is our second point. Paul uses his own personal testimony. And this is the second in, in our outline, the theological truth. Here's the first theological truth. It's the theological truth about the remnant. We heard of it. Now Paul wants to show his Jewish brothers and sisters how true it is. Notice what he says in the second part of verse 2 all the way down to verse 6. Or do you not know what the scripture says in Elijah? You say, I don't know the book of Elijah. You don't have to. We have the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 18. The story of Elijah is there. That Paul's not saying there's a book of Elijah. Paul's speaking like we do. Haven't you heard in the scriptures about? And we go to that passage. This is all Paul's doing here. Don't you know your scriptures? Don't you know what the Bible says? Don't you, haven't you read about what happened to Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord! They've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. You say, what was happening with Elijah? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 18, 19, Elijah has just confronted, he's had this massive confrontation with the prophets of Baal. He's gone and done this great thing by God's strengthening and by God's care of Elijah, sending Fire from heaven to kill 850 prophets. There were 450 of Baal and 400 others who were hanging around. And God sends down fire as Elijah mocks them when they're dancing around. Maybe he's relieving himself. I love how God puts all that in his word. Showing how ridiculous it is to pray to false gods. And after that great event, the brave, courageous proclaimer of God, Elijah runs and hides because Ahab's wife puts out a death threat on him. Jezebel 
And so he isolates himself in fear. He's afraid. He hides under a juniper tree and he prays to God. And this is what he prays in verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. They're seeking my life now. There's nobody else, Lord. There's not another Christian on the earth. That's what he's saying. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, man, does anybody else feel like I feel? That's what Elijah was feeling like. I think I'm the only person left, God. You must have totally thrown us all aside. God answers his prayer. He says, no, no, Elijah, you're, you're not the only one. I have reserved 7,000 who will not bow the knee to Baal. 7,000. Elijah, you're not it. You think you're it. You think you're the only guy, but you're not it. And here's the point. The whole trouble with Elijah at that moment was that Elijah misjudged the situation. Elijah misjudged the situation. God had to change his perspective, didn't he? God had to say, no, 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 that's not true. Your perspective is is too small, Elijah. Your perspective is too minuscule. And Paul is saying then, he's taking this example from the Old Testament that the Jew would have known, that the Jew would have championed, you know, prophet Elijah, because they all said, oh yeah, who was Jesus? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some said that of John the Baptist, right? Jesus said he's like Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, John the Baptist. Elijah was huge in the minds of the Jews. Paul's saying to them, listen, God isn't finished with Israel. I'm proof of that. I'm proof of that. And I want you to know that unlike Elijah, I know I'm not the only one. Unlike what Elijah was praying, I'm not hiding under a tree. I'm not going behind a juniper bush. I'm not fearing all that. I'm standing here right before you and saying, I'm not the only one. If you just believe, you'll be in that. This is the gospel. I'm not the only guy. I'm not the only Christian. I'm not the only one. Because just like Elijah, so it is at this present time, there's a remnant. Notice what he says. But that, but what, what, what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul says, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul says, there, there you go. Election's the issue. It's all by God's choice. There's a remnant, just like it was during Elijah's time. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not the only one. The reality was that even in Paul's day, there was a whole host of Jews who had believed. Even in Paul's day. There were times, there, even in Elijah's day, there were those who believed. Paul's saying, listen, there's a whole host of people who have believed. A whole host of Israel has believed. He hasn't cast off the Jews totally. There's no way. That's why Paul says in verse 6, but if it is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You see, if you could work your way into heaven, then God isn't gracious. And the fact is, none of us deserve it. None of us could get there on our own. So it has to be of grace. God hasn't, 
He's shown us grace. He shows us grace all the time. We see it all the time. The gospel is grace. And Paul says, I'm standing here as proof of the grace of God. And you too can receive it. You see, beloved, there's a certainty in all of it. Because all things are happening according to God's sovereign purposes. That's the reality. All things are happening because God planned it that way. And God has chosen to save. God is not out of control. Israel is not totally rejected. God is saving his own. So when we come to chapter or verse 26... Verse 25 and 26, where Paul says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Talking to the Gentiles now. Speaking to the Gentiles, because he says, you, you know, down in verse 13, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. He's, he's, the first 12 verses, he's highlighting into his Jewish brothers. And then he switches with that contrasting word, but I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. It gets down to verse 25. I don't want you, brethren, Christian brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, thinking, hey, we're something. Look at God saved us because we're such great people. No. I just want you to know a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Israel's hardness to the gospel as a as a national reality, there's smatterings of Jews that get saved, but not as a full-blown reality of a, of a revival kind of idea. <clears throat> That's going to go on until all the Gentiles that God's saving come in. And then all Israel will be saved. Not all as inclusively of all, but all exclusively in the sense of God's chosen of Israel. They will be saved. So God hasn't totally rejected Israel at all. So what, is, what, what does all that mean for us? <clears throat> what does all that mean? We'll get to the second theological truth next time. But what does all that mean for us? All right, that's, that's what we should be asking ourselves, right? That's what we started with this morning. Practice, obedience. We hear these things so that we could obey them. So, that we, so it wouldn't just be words in our head, in our ears. We, we don't just want a history lesson. So what about us? Well, the first thing is this. The doctrine of the remnant, the doctrine of the remnant, the doctrine of the reality that God has chosen some to save, a remnant from them, gives a kind of guarantee for the nation's continuance, doesn't it? Just like we saw in 1 Peter in reference to the world. It gives a guarantee for the continuance until God saves all those whom he's chosen. So the doctrine of the remnant, when you think about Israel itself, gives a guarantee for the continuance of Israel because God hasn't rejected His people whom He foreknew. God isn't going to disregard Israel altogether because He's saving Jews. The remnant is part of the whole. And the remnant is the outcome of God's choice. Therefore, were it not for God's choice, the whole would be rejected. But because God has chosen to save, then the whole is preserved until the remnant is saved. 
That's the first thing. That's a theological truth that you can have in your mind and understand when it comes to this whole idea of Israel. And you'll read it in books. You'll think through it. You'll have people who are other mindsets and you'll be able to go, well, well, that doesn't make sense with what the scriptures teach. But then secondly, secondly, that means that we, once again, you and I, are shown that we can trust what God's doing. We can trust what God's doing. We don't have to be surprised at what we see, even in our crazy days, the world in which we live. It's, it's nuts. I mean, it's crazy out there. We don't have to get all tied up with the things that are happening, fret about the future. Why? Because it really doesn't matter what's happening here. It really doesn't. The actions of men have no bearing upon the plan of God in an ultimate sense. God is unaffected in His purposes. His plans to save all are unaffected by the craziness of our world. Nothing is going to change that. Not you, not me, not fake news, not global turmoil, nothing. So what do we need to focus on? Give the gospel. Just give the gospel. You heard it this morning in Sunday school. Give the gospel. This wasn't a pre-planned, by the way, uh, message where we looked down the future and said, oh, I'll be in Romans chapter 11 this time. Hey, Randy, be good for you. No, we didn't plan any of that. You know what? God did all that. I don't plan any of that out. I just take the scriptures as they come and we spend whatever time we spend there. God did all that. Why? Because it's, pre- it's through the preached gospel that people get saved. How are they going to hear without a preacher? The world's sharing God's grace. The gospel is God's grace. That's our job to take it to men. So like Paul, we ought to have a heartfelt desire to see all come to know Christ as their Savior. Just like Paul has for his Jewish brothers and sisters. We ought to have a heart for these people. Well, we'll get more next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for these words about your people, Israel. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that it came through them. That through their rejection, it went out to us. How that mysteriously works and flows through your sovereignty and our responsibility in all these areas sometimes that we get so confused and get our minds wrapped up on thinking that we, our thoughts are your thoughts and how you work is the way we would work and all this logical stuff in our heads which is fallen and tainted by sin. Lord, we pray that we don't put you in a box. We just think like Peter was reminding us that you're not like us. You're not bound by time. You're not bound by our thinking. And all we need to do is rest on your truth. What you said, it is certain. It will happen. You will save your people whom you have foreknown. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, pray. That you would continue through our even feeble efforts to obey you. Others would see your grace in Jesus Christ. And know that you are a saving God. To your glory we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.